The third, broadly, line of work is what is deconstruction of the administrative state. And if you... Yeah. So did you think Steve Bannon was kidding about that? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. He wasn't. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another toxic stew of information overload <laughs> that we call the Bradcast. Yes, it Good certainly does seem to be going in that direction, oh, doesn't it? Oh, it does seem going. It's <laughs> Anyway, hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, shortly after Donald Trump took office in 2017, his then senior political advisor, Steve Bannon, who you heard there at the top, declared that the Trump administration's goals included nothing less than, quote, the deconstruction of the administrative state. What did that mean? actually mean? Well, at the time, he explained during that CPAC appearance, quote, the way the progressive left runs, if they can't get it passed, they're just going to put in some sort of regulation in an agency. That's all going to be deconstructed, he vowed. Donald Trump may be mercifully out of office for now, but his effort to deconstruct the administrative state, that continues through his stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court. And if you think the deconstruction of the administrative state is some wonky political idea that the right likes to run on that won't really affect you in any way, well, think again. Last Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard two cases regarding Joe Biden's vaccine mandates for health care workers and for large employers of more than 100 people. And while most of the coverage of that uh, the, the oral arguments of those hearings on Friday focused on whether or not the court would uphold Biden's mandates based on congressional statutes as interpreted by the administration to help save hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of American lives, you know, to protect the general welfare 
of Americans as prescribed by the U.S. Constitution itself? Well, most of the coverage of the hearings on Friday were on whether the court would uphold or strike down those rather reasonable public health mandates. But what is really literally at stake in their soon-to-be-issued opinion is much, much, much larger than that. Slate Court reporter Mark Joseph Stern will be here momentarily to explain his first parents of the year, I do believe. And you know, whenever Mark is here, it's always nothing but good news, right? <laughs> nothing but kittens and rainbows. Yes, kittens and rainbows. Straight ahead on the Brandcast with Mark Joseph Stern. I wish. Uh, before we get to those kittens and those rainbows, some very quick news items that might actually be slightly brighter, in fact, for you today. Uh, this was fun. Here's how Here's how the alerts came into, uh, into my iPhone uh, just an hour or so ago. See if you can spot anything different here, Adez, in one of these alerts. I'm just going to read them in the order that they came in. CNN, breaking news. House January 6th committee asks Minority Leader Rep. Kevin McCarthy to voluntarily provide information to the panel. From AP breaking news, the House panel investigating the Capitol riot is seeking information from GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, who spoke with ex-President Trump as the attack unfolded. From Washington Post, House January 6th committee asks Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to provide information about the communication with about communication with Trump and Mark Meadows. From NBC News breaking January 6th committee requests info from House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, who spoke with Trump during the riot. Breaking news from The New York Times, the January 6th panel asked to interview Kevin McCarthy, the top House Republican, about its contacts with Donald Trump on the day of the riot. And finally, Fox News. House January 6th committee demands interview <laughs> with a top Republican leader. Yes, I believe I can detect a slight difference in wording really? there between ask and demand. Yes, the fa in fact, the uh, bipartisan House panel investigating the U.S. Capitol insurrection requested, did not demand, but requested an interview, not a deposition, but an interview, and records from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday as it shifts its focus to former President Donald Trump's inner circle. And what he was doing as hundreds of his supporters brutally beat police, stormed the building and interrupted the certification of President Joe Biden's victory, according to AP. And I will add, in hopes of stealing the 2020 election. Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson, Democratic chair of the panel, requested that McCarthy of California provide information to the nine member panel regarding his conversations with Trump, quote, before, during, and after the riot. The request also seeks information about McCarthy's communications with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the days before the attack. It remains unclear whether the panel will be able to gain testimony from McCarthy. Well, maybe they should have demanded it. Or from any other congressional allies of Trump. While the committee has considered subpoenaing fellow lawmakers, that would be an extraordinary move and could run up against legal and political challenges. I would say it would run up against both legal and political challenges. So for now, it's a request to McCarthy 
a voluntary, uh, they hope that he will voluntarily turn over this uh, information and, and speak with the committee. As well, it's a request previously to congressional members like Jim Jordan, who has previously said during a congressional hearing that he, quote, has nothing to hide, though now he seems to be hiding from the January 6th committee and their request for some reason. The other request for interviews and documents went out to Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. So far, none of them has answered those requests uh, that they've been issued by the committee. We'll see if they end up getting subpoenaed in turn as uh, folks like, yes, Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows have been, uh, both of whom are now uh, facing criminal contempt of Congress charges. But for a sitting member of Congress to be subpoenaed by other sitting members of Congress, well, that has never happened before in U.S. history, as I understand it. But maybe that is the sort of thing we should expect when one side of the political spectrum makes it their purpose in government to, you know deconstruct the administrative state, particularly with a violent, deadly insurrection to try and steal an election from the American people. And speaking of which, since I'm trying to offer some moderately encouraging news before we get to our next story with Mark Joseph Stern, uh, is it working yet, Des? Are you encouraged <laughs> yet? Mm, working no, on it. Okay. The uh, the criminal case, maybe this will do it. The criminal case that I have always thought would be the first one to come down on Donald Trump since leaving office. Well, I'm going to crib from Charles Jay's coverage here at Daily Coast since he brings together all of the latest, uh, most noteworthy threads here. Donald Trump is now feeling the heat from Fulton County, Georgia's district attorney, Fonnie Willis, who may have the strongest case against him at the moment. Certainly, I think it's the simplest case. The Atlanta area DA is conducting a criminal investigation of alleged attempts by Trump and others to conspire to pressure Georgia officials to overturn Joe Biden's presidential election victory in the Peach State. Yes, to steal it from the voters of Georgia. Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin on Tuesday uh, said, quote, as remarkable as it may be, a single state district attorney may have the best shot to hold Trump criminally liable and deter future failed candidates from trying to overthrow an election again. Just a day earlier, the Associated Press reported that Willis said in an interview that a decision on whether to bring charges against Trump and others, I suppose, could come as early as the first half of this year. So coming soon. According to AP, uh, uh, Willis, quote, Willis said her team is making solid progress and that she's leaning toward asking for a special grand jury with subpoena power to aid the investigation. I read that as leaning towards bringing indictments. Willis told the AP, quote, I certainly think that in the first half of the year that decisions, decisions will be made. We're just going to uh, we're going to just get the facts, get the law, be very methodical, very patient and to some extent unemotional about this quest for justice, she said in that interview with AP. On Monday night, Rachel Maddow dropped a bit of a bombshell in her own exclusive report 
finding that attorneys for President Donald Trump have now met in person with the Fulton County District Attorney's Office in Georgia. That meeting occurred a month ago, apparently. Within days of that meeting, Trump had his spokesperson put out a rather bizarre statement via Twitter, and at the time, it sort of seemed to come out of nowhere, but now perhaps it makes a bit more sense. The unhinged, seemingly out-of-the-blue statement read in part on December 18th, quote, all the Democrats want to do is put people in jail. They are vicious, violent, and radical left thugs. They are destroying people's lives, which is the only thing they are good at. Their DAs, AGs, and Dem law enforcement are out of control. This is what happens in communist countries and dictatorships. Well, that makes a lot more sense in this new context. I think it does. I think we read that uh, that statement at the time he issued it last month. Well, now we know uh, Donald Trump's attorneys had just been meeting with the district attorney, the D.A., Fonnie Willis, in Georgia regarding his attempt to steal the election in that state. In her column at The Post, Jennifer Rubin noted that, quote, unlike the federal case concerning the instigation of a violent insurrection, Trump's direct participation is not at issue in the Georgia case. The potential smoking gun in that case is the taped January 2nd phone call in which Trump sought to pressure Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes, just enough to give the former president the victory in Georgia. On the tape, you'll recall Trump also implicitly implicitly threatened Raffensperger and oh, yeah. his lawyer. That's right. Remember that uh, if they didn't find the extra votes, they would be, quote, a criminal offense. It would be, quote, a big risk if they did not uh, play along with Trump. Then uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Trump's lawyers were also on that call. They could also be subpoenaed by the grand jury. Willis uh, confirmed to the AP that the investigation's scope also includes, but is not limited to, a November 2020 phone call between U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Raffensperger. They also had a conversation. Is that one on tape? Maybe. It also includes the abrupt resignation of B.J. Pack, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, on January 4, just before the insurrection, and comments made during December 2020, uh, a December 2020 Georgia Legislative Committee hearing on the election. And Fonnie Willis, as we reported some months ago, has also hired a top RICO conspiracy guy to help out, a prosecutor to help out with the investigation, one which could, in the first half of this year, according to Willis, result uh, perhaps in indictments for a whole bunch of people like Trump and Meadows. And yes, Rudy Giuliani was part of what went on in that uh, legislative committee hearing down in Georgia. Even Lindsey Graham could be brought into this. Who knows who else? That uh, investigation, in any event, is very much alive and well and is moving forward to the point where Trump's own attorneys have been called in to speak with prosecutors. And it's certainly a much simpler case than this huge federal case, federal cases, 
uh, that we'd like to see uh, accountability in regarding the January 6th attack and Trump's broader attempt to steal the 2020 election and a whole bunch of other stuff. Willis told the AP that she had received threats from people uh, who are unhappy that she is considering possible criminal charges against Trump who have, quote, expressed their frustration in a way that is so rational that I believe they would do me harm. But she said she's undeterred. As a longtime prosecutor in the Fulton County DA's office, she said threats are nothing new. They are truly wasting their time, she said. It's not going to deter me from my job, period. I'm not going to do any less or more because, you know, you try to offend me because I'm black or female or of a political party. We were elected to do a job, and that's what I'm going to sit here and do. That sounds like good news to me. Is that any more encouraging, Desi Doyen? Slightly more encouraging. Okay, well, let me ruin it because the <laughs> good news portion of the show is now over. You are welcome. <laughs> Mark Joseph Stern joins us next. And as usual, when he's here, even though you might want to miss it, you really don't want to miss it. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. <laughs> You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last Friday, as Slate's great legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern summarized, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a set of cases challenging President Joe Biden's COVID vaccine mandates. The first case, National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Department of Labor, involves Biden's so-called employer vaccine mandate, which requires large companies with more than 100 employees to give their workers an ultimatum, either get vaccinated against COVID or wear a mask and get tested weekly. Sounds reasonable, perhaps too reasonable, but reasonable. They can simply choose to test out of taking the vaccine if they want. The second case, Ohio versus Department of Labor, requires health care providers that receive money from Medicare or Medicaid from the federal government, from those two executive branch agencies, to mandate vaccinations for their staff. Since most hospitals and care facilities participate in Medicare or Medicaid, the rule covers most health care workers in the country. In both cases, as Mark notes, Republican attorneys general have led the legal battle against both rules. And I should note, ironically enough, two of the attorneys attacking the vaccine rules last week had tested positive for COVID-19 and they participated in the hearing remotely. All of the justices hearing the case, except for Neil Gorsuch, wore masks during the oral argument. Mark writes, Biden's policies uh, prompted a flurry of litigation across the country, with lower court judges reaching wildly divergent conclusions about their legality. Now the justices are determining, after the hearings on both cases last week, on an accelerated timeline whether the administration can lawfully impose these new rules in the midst of the Omicron wave. 
which I will note has sent hospitalizations skyrocketing to record levels, record levels not seen since the pandemic since the pandemic began two years ago. But while the court's rulings on these cases have obvious public health implications, writes Stearns, and could result in hundreds of Americans being saved from unnecessary deaths or losing their lives, depending on how the court rules, the cases themselves, as Stern observes, have sweeping implications for many other areas of federal regulatory law, above and beyond simply public health amidst the worst pandemic in 100 years. Given that ongoing pandemic, now amid its worst surge, at least as far as infections and hospitalizations go, it's easy to focus on the two vaccine mandates at immediate issue here. But even though the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans certainly seem important, the fallout from these two rulings could ultimately make these two specific cases pale by comparison in the years ahead. So what is Mark Joseph Stern suggesting here? Well, let's ask him. We're happy to have Mark back again with us. Of course, he covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, and much more at Slate.com and has long been our go-to legal court and constitutional expert, frankly, here on the broadcast at crucial moments like this. Oh, Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, and not a moment too soon, I should add. So happy to be here. Excellent summary of the nightmare that we descended into last week and remain in as we speak. Yeah, you know, we haven't spoken to you since the uh, since the new SCOTUS term uh, began last September. So, A, Happy New Year, my friend. And uh, it, it's been a very busy term already for the court. We we knew before it began that it, that, that was going to be the case with pending uh, potentially landmark cases already on the docket on everything from abortion to guns to labor rights and more, but it has become even more busy now with the court taking up several cases at the very last minute on the Texas abortion ban, now on Biden's COVID vaccine mandates. How unusual is it for the court these days to hear such cases so quickly? And uh, how much of that is in response to the sort of broad criticism of a series of their uh, recent rulings that were made on the so-called shadow docket where they make sometimes brief, often unsigned, sometimes literally midnight rulings without the benefit of full briefs and oral arguments? So, you know, obviously we're only uh, gleaning information from the court's actions. We haven't heard any statements from the justices, but I think it is very clear that the Supreme Court is reacting to the widespread criticism of its use and abuse of the shadow docket, especially the two different hearings held by each chamber of Congress scrutinizing the shadow docket, at which, at least in the House hearing, several Republican members of Congress expressed some grave concern um, about the rise of these cases decided without oral arguments or full briefing, often in the dead of night. Um, so it is unusual for the court um, to take on a, a case on an emergency basis and hear oral arguments just two weeks after taking it up. Mm. Um, but I, I think that is going to be the new procedure for this court mm. when it has a hot potato that's very time sensitive, because it's really the only alternative to deciding a case on the shadow docket. And for the record, as critical as I am of the outcome of many of these cases, 
I do think that is much healthier, and I do commend the court for taking a step back from the breach and not simply deciding all of this stuff behind closed doors mm-hmm. without any kind of public scrutiny or oral argument. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't, and I'm sure it's happened, but I don't remember anything really since, you know, Bush v. Gore that they've jumped in and uh, heard and decided this quickly. I'm sure there must have been other cases along those lines in those in the past 20 years or so. But for them to do two of them this quickly does seem unusual. Now, Mark, I usually tend to end our conversations on cases like this by getting your read on how the justices might rule based on their questions and oral arguments. That's always a fraught exercise, of course. Uh, in tea leave reading. But let me start there for a moment today, because, uh, you know, in a general sense, before we jump into the specifics of of these cases, um, and more interestingly, I think the broader constitutional administrative issues at stake, uh, which is really why I want to talk to you. But were you able to get a read on where the justices were on these two questions and and how they might rule? So I think it's very likely that a majority of the court will block the employer mandate, which, as you noted, is not actually a vaccine mandate, but a vaccinate or test mandate. Nonetheless, it seems like five or six of the Republican-appointed justices are prepared to invalidate most or all of that policy. Uh, I'm not so sure about the other mandate, which applies to most healthcare workers in the United States, and for the record, does include robust exemptions for medical and religious purposes. Mm -hmm. exemptions that I personally think are too broad, but there you have it. Um, It seemed like some of the Republican-appointed justices, like Kavanaugh and Roberts, understood that clearly Congress envisioned this kind of latitude when it gave the executive branch very broad powers to regulate the use of Medicare and Medicaid money. Whether they will follow that reasoning to its logical conclusion and uphold this mandate as a perfectly legitimate exercise of executive discretion remains to be seen. But if I had to bet money on one of these mandates surviving, it would absolutely be the health care mandate, not the employer mandate. Now, both of these cases as noted, were were heard on an expedited basis. Does that mean that a ruling will similarly come on an expedited basis, or are we going to be waiting until June or July when they release all of the, the rest of their opinions this term? will come very soon. It could come down as we speak, in fact. Um, We just don't know. The court has not indicated when it will release it, but for the last round of expedited arguments over the Texas abortion case, uh, there there were about 40 days in between argument and a decision. I don't think it will be that long here, if only because the OSHA mandate for employers Mm -hmm. requiring vaccinations or testing for large companies, that is already in effect. It is being implemented as we speak. In fact, it's being implemented at Slate, I'm very glad to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just submitted my own proof of vaccination. I was delighted to do it. Um, And so, you know, if the conservatives really do want to step in and block this mandate, time is running out. It's already going into effect, and it's going to be hard to unring the bell after a certain point. And this was something you noted in your article at Slate with our friend uh, Dahlia Lithwick. You noted that uh, Sam Alito seemed to think this was really, really urgent you know, whether a stay should be put on these mandates after that same Alito recently argued there was no rush in determining and whether Texas's law should, you know, stay in effect, even though it clearly overturns Roe v. Wade by blocking access to abortion in the state. Correct. 
you can tell a lot about a justice based on what they deemed to be an emergency. Uh, Alito <laughs> did not think there was any urgency in uh, protecting constitutional precedent uh, regarding abortion rights in wow. Texas, but he did think that it was very, very important to step in immediately here and block these mandates. Even though doing so, the government estimates, and I agree, will cost hundreds of lives, potentially thousands of lives every month, um, based on the best estimates of the actual experts in the federal government mm. who are tasked by Congress with controlling this kind of stuff. Oh, never mind those experts. Uh, let's go to uh, each of these two cases, because uh, those experts very much come into question in, in both of these cases. So you write that federal law, again, adopted by Congress, compels the Health and Human Services Secretary to impose new, quote, requirements on eligible facilities when they are, quote, necessary to protect patients, quote, health and safety. That's the basis for HHS's health care mandate. Uh, and, and, and so what is Ohio's objection to that uh, statutory mandate, really, by the Health and Human Services Administration? Well, first of all, they argue that mandating vaccinations for any reason goes beyond what Congress envisioned when it passed this law. Now, we could have a whole side conversation here about textualism and why Republican lawyers are arguing that congressional intent matters. Um, but, you know, I think it's pretty clear if you simply read the text of this law mm -hmm. that the, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services has broad and sweeping power to do whatever she or he believes is necessary to protect the health and safety of patients. And as Justice Kagan put it during oral arguments, the most fundamental rule of the medical profession is to not kill your patients. <laughs> and by remaining unvaccinated, staff at these care facilities may very well kill their own patients. Yeah. And it seems that Congress would want the secretary to step in and prevent that kind of mass death through a pretty simple, straightforward, and of course, a very medically sound uh, vaccination regime. That's the health care mandate. Now to the employer mandate. Again, uh, you write, federal law allows the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, that's OSHA, to issue a, quote, emergency temporary standard when it determines that it's, quote, necessary to protect employees from a, quote, grave danger resulting from, quote, physically harmful agents or new hazards, which seems to describe this particular pandemic. That's the basis for OSHA's employer mandate. And I mean, it seems to be precisely in line with the statute adopted by Congress. What could the uh, challengers here and the court possibly find wrong with that? So, uh, you know, once again, the challengers argue that uh, the coronavirus does not fall within the meaning of um, a hazardous agent or uh, an infectious disease that could cause grave danger, um, which is just ridiculous. I think we can agree. Uh, and so they, they make this kind of deeper constitutional argument that even if it does theoretically fall under this statute, that because Congress didn't explicitly say vaccinations are one way to deal with this problem that OSHA can require, it would be unconstitutional for the executive branch to mandate vaccinations, that this is a, quote, major question that Congress cannot delegate to the executive branch, but instead has to explicitly decide itself. And once again, we should underscore they are not mandating vaccinations, right? right. Exactly. In the employer case, you don't have to take one at all. You could just get tested, wear a mask, 
And that's that. Okay, so there are, as you explain also at Slate, two main objections, I guess, to both of these mandates as based on legal doc doctrines that you describe as supposedly de derived from the Constitution. Let's discuss both of these here. The first one, what is the major, the so-called major question doctrine? So this doctrine is uh, a, a kind of fanciful way of saying that uh, executive agencies, so the Department of Labor, OSHA, the EPA, the, any agency you can think of, there are hundreds of them, mm -hmm. that they just don't get to make as much policy as we have allowed them to make for most of the history of the republic. That Congress can't say, okay, well, you need to protect the health and safety of workers or the health and safety of patients, or you need to prevent emissions that cause cancer in humans. That instead, Congress has to explicitly identify exactly what these agencies can and cannot do. Um, and when an agency uh, makes a policy that raises a, quote, major question, mm -hmm. like allegedly the vaccination policy does, that if the courts can't find some express authorization in the statutory text, um, that they must strike it down because this is a question for Congress, not for the agencies. Now, this seems insane. Uh, Congress would have to uh, e either have known that COVID was going to strike at some point when they passed their law, or they somehow now have to pass a new law, which can take months in the best of circumstances when Congress is not entirely broken, which I would argue it currently is. But they would have to pass a law for every single new thing that comes up, uh, you know, if someone feels like challenging anything that any agency does, they can present it as a major question, right? Yes, you can almost always frame uh, an agency rule as a, quote, major question. And Republicans increasingly are doing just that. Um, that's what the EPA case that the court will hear next month is mm -hmm. all about, where essentially the Biden EPA wants to restrict carbon emissions at power plants. And while federal law gives the EPA vast authority to regulate and restrict all kinds of toxic and harmful emissions from power plants, it doesn't explicitly say carbon. It says the EPA needs to decide what counts, and we will defer to their expertise. Republicans argue that rather there is a major question here about whether carbon can be limited. And so even if Congress tried to delegate this power to the agency, that's just too darn bad. The question is too darn major. And so Congress has to go back to the drawing board and do it all over again. And of course, you and I know, Mark, we could come up with a major question uh, you know, in quotes, a major question about anything that we oppose, you know, if we want to, if we have a reason to do it. I mean, it just uh, seems insane. OK, the second objection here to these mandates is, uh, well, you explain it. What is the non-delegation doctrine? And and this is a big deal. So the non-delegation doctrine is pretty similar to the major questions doctrine, but it, it's even broader because it argues that it's not just major questions that the executive branch can't decide. It's not just huge issues that these agencies can't decide. It's basically everything that Congress has to 
expressly identify every single thing that an agency can do. They say, well, you can have this much mercury in the water, but not this much. And agencies have no power to adjust those rules. They have no power to address new crises and new problems under existing frameworks that anything an agency wants to do has to be expressly uh, permitted by Congress, because otherwise Congress is, quote, delegating its legislative power to the executive branch. And under this theory, it is the judiciary's job to police that boundary between the two branches and to keep the executive from legislating by making policy. Uh, Which, uh, so if I'm understanding this correctly, Mark, uh, the opponents are saying that the administration is over-interpreting uh, the statute, over-interpreting what they are allowed to do based on the original text of the law itself. And uh, even if they are not, the laws themselves are therefore unconstitutional uh, because they allow the executive branch too much authority to actually enforce them. That is exactly right. So, well put. so I, I'm an originalist, Mark, a constitutional. I'm a textualist, just like, you know, the late Antonin Scalia and the still alive Thomas and Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett's, etc. Where can I find the major question and non-delegation doctrines in the U.S. Constitution that opponents to the administration mandates are, are leaning on here? You will find it nowhere. What? Because it does not exist. There is no major questions clause. There is no non-delegation clause. There is no separation of powers clause. (laughs) There is nothing that requires these principles and certainly nothing that gives the federal judiciary the power to decide what the executive branch gets to do and not do under congressional delegations. All of this stuff has been made up. It was made up a long time ago and used to block New Deal programs under FDR, Mm. then immediately abandoned and discarded for nearly a century. Only in the last few years has it been revived by so-called originalists who are seeking to box in Democratic presidents and prevent them from uh, issuing Mm. any kind of policy. But I just want to pause here to note, we are talking about a really recent revival, because as recently as the early 2000s, the Supreme Court unanimously disclaimed any real version of the non-delegation doctrine. In a majority opinion written by Antonin Scalia, he basically said, we're not going to muck around with this because we don't have any standards for it. We don't have any expertise. It's not our job to tell Congress what it can and cannot entrust the executive to do. We are only about two decades out from that, and the entire conservative legal movement has turned on a dime and decided that, in fact, the courts have this intense obligation to police the boundaries between these branches, even though there's nothing in the Constitution that permits it, let alone requires it. And even though Antonin Scalia, the one who they revere, who they lionize for his constitutionalist, originalist uh, interpretation of the Constitution, even though he said... These things are not in the Constitution. We can't make decisions based on this. They, uh, uh, the, the ones who revere him sitting on the court now seem to be ignoring that entirely? Yes, they do. Um, <laughs> and just to understand how far we have moved from 
Scalia's position. I, I would encourage everyone to read his opinion because it's really good. The case is called Whitman versus American Trucking. It's from 2001, and it is a very clear explanation of why the federal courts have absolutely no business mucking around in this kind of cooperation and negotiation between Congress and the executive branch. Uh, 20 years later, 21 years later, mm-hmm. everyone has decided to ignore that opinion on the right and pretend like it never happened. And just to underscore this, so, I mean, because the argument here, if it's a question of who has the power to make these decisions regarding uh, things like, uh, you know, mandates, and I assume the, the justices, they would be fine if, uh, you know, Congress went into the Capitol tomorrow and said uh, everyone who works at a, at a large business with more than 100 employers must take a vaccine or be tested each week. Uh, they'd be fine if uh, Congress went in and said, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, HHS can determine who must take uh, vaccines in the in the healthcare industry or not. I guess they'd be fine if Congress did that. But they seem to be arguing that only Congress can do that. Essentially, the decision here is, can Congress do that or the executive branch do it? And yet, it seems like the ultimate authority in these cases is going to be neither of them, Mark. It's going to be the judicial branch that is making this ultimate decision. Is that part in the Constitution? No, it is not at all. Uh, Certainly not envisioned by the framers. Uh, I do just want to add a footnote to what you said. Mm -hmm. A number of Trump judges in the lower courts argued that Congress couldn't do this either. Uh, On the Fifth (laughs) Circuit uh, and on the Sixth Circuit, several Trump judges argued that it would even be beyond the power of Congress to issue a vaccine or test mandate for large employers. Uh, And so it's not at all clear to me that the conservative justices believe Congress has this power. But for our purposes, because Congress hasn't even tried explicitly during COVID, they are content to try to revive these other moribund doctrines because they know they can work a lot of mischief with them. So, uh, again, to underscore this, because I think it's so important that people understand and, 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 and we'll explain why in a moment. You sort of hinted at some of it when it comes to the EPA. But here we have Congress, which has really no experts uh, in these things at all. And then there is the judiciary who are political appointees, essentially. They have no uh, expertise in these matters. And then there is the executive branch with tons Thousands of experts on these things, specific, uh, you know, experts in these fields at agencies like HHS, OSHA, CDC, FDA, the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, etc. The court is going to decide who is best positioned to make decisions here about public health amid a deadly pandemic that has already killed more than 800,000 Americans over the past two years. And they, the non Experts on the judiciary may decide that the non-experts in Congress must be the ones to do that. Am I getting this correct? That's exactly right. And what we see here, in my view, is a lot of judicial hostility toward those experts in the executive branch. Uh, A sense that they are beady-eyed bureaucrats haunting the basements of Capitol Hill, uh, just working their mischief with all of these federal laws, trying to intrude on individual liberty and ruin our constitutional order. A lot of these doctrines derive from the justices' personal distrust 
of the people who run our government. If this comes to pass, Mark, if this is what the judiciary, what this Supreme Court actually decides, which actually sets as precedent, you know, as based on what our Constitution demands. Can an argument be made at that point, if so, that uh, our Constitution is therefore completely broken? Absolutely. Um, And that's one of the rather frightening aspects of all of these doctrines, is that they mark, to my mind, an effort to break the Constitution. Certainly our Constitution is sclerotic and creaky in many ways, um, but there are parts of it that work okay. And for many years, one of those has been Congress's ability to delegate all this big stuff to the executive, because the executive can at least work. Uh, And now it looks like there is a really good chance that the court will prohibit um, that kind of cooperation, and that will just actively destroy, I think, the Constitution as we know it, as dramatic as that might sound. No, I know. And it does sound dramatic. But, you know, when I'm when I'm looking at this, looking at this case, looking at the the facts that you are pointing out that are all independently verifiable, it seems like the inescapable uh, conclusion. I I mean, you know, the idea that the experts who have been delegated by Congress to make these decisions are not going to be allowed to make these decisions that Congress is going to with no experts. And that's going to be decided by the judiciary with similarly no experts. Something has gone terribly wrong if this is what actually happens. And by the way, Mark. Isn't there an actual general welfare clause originally and textually in the Constitution that could be invoked here when the government is making a rule to, you know, protect the general welfare by keeping hundreds of thousands of Americans from dying unnecessarily with a simple, safe, effective vaccine that they can opt out of in most cases if they want? Does that not come into play? Was it raised at the uh, at the SCOTUS hearing last week? No, it was not, and unfortunately the conservative justices have worked very hard to neuter this pretty basic constitutional principle that this document is supposed to serve as a broad license for all three branches to protect the general welfare. What we see instead is the rankest kind of judicial supremacy, an incredible arrogance among the third branch uh, that just seems to assume that judges know better than everyone else, that it's not uh, the democratically accountable agencies and experts who decide, but the unelected judges who have life tenure and never have to face the consequences of their own decisions. And the reason all of this is so maddening, obviously, uh, you know, the health of millions of Americans is at stake, which ought to be enough in in, in any case like this. But the uh, sad fact is this is much bigger than even that, Mark Joseph Stern. I want to take a quick break here and come back and ask you about that. Uh, I think it's it's bigger than that, and it's bigger than people understand. This is not just about two vaccine mandates. Quick break, and we're back with Mark Joseph Stern right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. 
and thanks. does feel like it's closing in. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Speaking with Mark Joseph Stern, uh, the great legal reporter from Slate.com, about, well, these uh, two vaccine mandates that were heard by the Supreme Court last week. Uh, and more troubling, the uh, arguments with which both of them could well be struck down. Of course, millions of lives are at stake in those decisions alone. But even bigger than that, we are looking at possibly the uh, actual death of the administrative state. I don't think uh, it's an overstatement to put it that way, Mark. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the EPA and you argue in your uh, in your article at Slate.com, despite these high stakes, the longer term consequences are arguably worse. And then you cite, for example, that it is worth noting that the Supreme Court has already taken up a case challenging the EPA's authority to restrict carbon emissions. Is uh, is that not the EPA specifically, but the EPA and a host of hundreds of other federal executive agencies that could be hobbled, hobbled by this radical, stolen, far-right Republican Supreme Court who seems to hope to cut these federal agencies off at their knees, above and beyond the COVID uh, business. Is that how you're reading this? Yes. That is exactly how I'm reading it, as an opportunity in the eyes of the Republican justices, not just a crisis or an emergency, but an opportunity that doesn't come along too often to fundamentally reshape the workings of our government, to make it work less, to make it work not for the people, but for a few select juristocrats who hold all of the power in our system. It is really devastating. It will harm millions of people if we do not allow our government to work. Um, But that is what these justices seem to want, and that is the road that we are already following down. Did you use the word juristocrats? I sure did. We live in a juristocracy, my friend, and we are only just beginning to see the downstream consequences of it. I'm afraid you might be right. Uh, As uh, Justice Alana Kagan once wrote, uh, if the conservative justices are correct about the non-delegation doctrine here, that these issues may not be delegated to the experts in the executive branch, uh, she said, then most of government is unconstitutional. Dependent as Congress is on the need to give discretion to executive officials to implement its programs and essentially saying that Congress must delegate everything that the executive branch does. What what case was she referring to there? Because, boy, howdy, does it seem to apply right now? She was referring to uh, a case in which she wrote the lead opinion called Gundy versus United States, which involves the attorney general's ability to impose certain restrictions on convicted sex offenders. I have to say, as a policy matter in that case, I was not a fan of that law. I think it was overly restrictive and raised serious concerns about retroactive punishment. But I think that her opinion was dead right, that of course Congress has the power to delegate those kinds of discretionary calls to agencies, including the Department of Justice. And if it doesn't, then most of our government will grind to a halt. I mean, yeah. I mean, it seems like what what the justices here are calling for, if they make this decision, frankly, is anarchy. I mean, at least at a time... 
you know, when Congress is pretty much unable to do almost anything at all. All laws will come to a stop. All, uh, you know, uh, federal enforcement of uh, regulations by the executive branch will have to come to a stop. I mean, it sounds like anarchy. I, I think <laughs> that you are probably correct about some of the implications. I think if you ask these justices, they would say, no, no, it sounds like federalism. So, <laughs> you know, they think that this is just going to devolve all of these powers back to the states. states. Um, okay. That is not the case. Unfortunately, there are many problems today that must be addressed by a unified federal response. If we purport to leave all of this stuff to the states, we are going to end up in worse trouble than we're already in. Last two questions, I think. Uh, what else What else could be affected above and beyond public health and uh, the EPA, carbon emissions, uh, you know, that is uh, killing humanity here? Uh, what else could be affected as you see it based on what the court decides to do here in these, in these two public health cases? You know, whenever someone asks me this, I- I'm almost overwhelmed because there's so much. The list is so long that I feel like I have trouble grasping at any individual thing. Mm, But I'll just zero in on a couple possible examples here. Um, A lot of the federal laws governing the workplace, not just safety in the workplace, but overtime, fair pay, and equal pay, um, you know, discrimination, all of that stuff is largely delegated to the agencies, to the Department of Labor, to OSHA, to the EEOC. The list goes on. And so, you know, that's one place where if this delegation doctrine, non-delegation doctrine is revived, we're going to see all kinds of federal laws protecting workers just completely obliterated. Um, I would also look to um, uh, an agency like, again, the EPA, because this does not start or stop with carbon. This goes to every toxic chemical on the planet, which Congress simply does not have the time or expertise to list. So anytime you're thinking about the amount of benzene or methane or whatever horrific chemical you want to talk about in the water supply, the air supply, that stuff is regulated by the EPA, not directly by Congress. And if this Supreme Court goes as far as I fear it will, we're going to have a lot more unnecessary deaths because of a horrific amount of pollution that the president is going to be told he simply cannot curb. So Congress didn't uh, say uh, that HHS could take action against COVID in their law. Similarly, Congress didn't say that uh, the EPA could take action against uh, benzene or anything else. Uh, Therefore, they are not allowed to do that unless Congress does it. Last uh, question, as if this is all not uh, disturbing enough, but uh, maybe maybe here's some hope, Mark. If if the court does this, wouldn't that also hobble? Republican administrations, Republican presidents, the next time one of them is in the White House, won't they have trouble, uh, uh, you know, enforcing anything that they wish to through their own uh, executive branch agencies? So I have two answers to that. The first is that Republicans generally like to cut or repeal regulations rather than implement them. You may remember that Trump had a two-out, one-in rule, that for every new regulation, two had to be repealed. (laughs) So they kind of benefit from this because their donors, big corporations, like having all of this, quote, red tape slashed. So they will benefit from a lot of these decisions, or at least their donor class will, and that will help them. 
The other answer is, of course, you can always just tweak and fine-tune these rules so that they only apply against Democratic presidents. That's what we saw a lot under Obama and then under Trump. The classic example is that the Trump administration unilaterally rewrote immigration law in multiple contexts. The Trump administration simply threw out the law that Congress passed and rewrote its own statute to keep refugees and migrants out of the country, and the Supreme Court did not stop it. Now Biden comes in and tries to do some modest COVID protocols, and the Supreme Court is terrified and infuriated. So never expect the court to apply these doctrines consistently. What's good for the goose is not good for the gander. It's almost as if they're uh, hypocritical, uh, juristocratic liars. Go figure. <laughs> almost. Yep. Mark Joseph Stern, uh, thank you. He covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, at Slate.com and much more at Slate.com. You can find him on the Twitters at MJS underscore D.C., Boy, uh, I, I hope I hope a lot of people hear our conversation today because with the focus on the on the on the vaccines, yes, that is obviously critical. But this matter is much much bigger than that, and I hope folks are paying attention. Mark, thank you for everything you do. Really appreciate uh, talking to you, and uh, thanks for kicking off our year with a lively conversation. Of course, I appreciate you fighting the good fight. Thank you, brother. Okay, well. Um, have we mentioned lately that elections have consequences and voting really, really, really matters? I don't know what you're talking about, Desi. Everything <laughs> is kittens and rainbows, as I recall. Everything is just fine. I, uh, boy, yeah, d- disturbing. Buckle up. B- buckle up indeed. And, you know, every time we have uh, Mark on the show, it seems like it's these same warnings. And I wish more people were talking about what Mark Joseph Stern has to say, what these warnings are, because they're not seeing the forest for the trees. They're seeing the COVID vaccine mandates. They are not seeing the destruction, the deconstruction of the administrative state. Just as Steve Bannon promised years ago, that effort is still very much underway and is doing well. Oh, boy. All right. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or you just want to drive yourself crazy by hearing it again, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That service and all that we do here on your public airwaves is made possible only by listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us keep doing what we try to do here every day. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.